Hey everyone, welcome to Bob Says and Banthas, a podcast about Disneyland, Star Wars, and all the other things the Disney company owns that we love. On this episode, we're joined again by Disney Imagineer and historian Tom K. Morris to talk about his work at Epcot and building a Disney castle. It's an amazing episode about imagination, design, and at the end, we answer a long-standing question that you will not want to miss. Well, welcome back to the show, Tom Morris, uh, Disney historian, Imagineer, fantastic storyteller, and uh, he has graced us with his presence I again know, I'm for so excited. another interview. Uh, and this time we're going to be talking, we spent a lot of time talking about how you got to Imagineering, and this one we're going to be talking about your time at Imagineering. So thanks again for joining us, Tom. Great. Looking forward to it. So, uh, Tom, thanks again so much for joining us on the show. Uh, the last time we talked, we, we talked about a lot of different things. We talked about uh, you growing up in Southern California, Newport Beach, and you flying yourself to Walt Disney World and your expertise on uh, balloon sales, both as a <laughs> balloon seller, as well as a, an Imagineer writing a, as we refer to it, a balloon manifesto about the importance of selling balloons and how to do that better. Um, and I think when we left, we basically got you right up to uh, when you started to work at WED and you had talked about how um, you were recruited into WED and when you came in, you were you came in as an apprentice draftsman. Right. And also Tony Baxter, you consulted you on coming into WED because you had a relationship with them that, that predated right. your time at WED. So That's right. when you came in, were you automatically put to work on Epcot? Because I know that that was one of your first projects. Let's see. I pretty much I was. I, I think for a couple of days I might have um, worked on Tokyo Disneyland, just you know, gluing together a presentation board or putting a border around it. You know, usually you start off doing grunt work. That's kind of a typical um, in all almost all industries like this, where you'll uh, be kind of a runner for a few days, or you'll um, work with a what were they called? The rub on letters. Um, <laughs> what is that? Back in old tiny days before anything digital, you know, you rubbed on the, um, the titles on the presentation boards, rub ons, we call them, I guess, but they, uh, they were made probably by chart pack or Pantone. One of those, we also put the Pantone colors on some of the presentations. Um, that was only for a few days, I think, before I started working on something with the world of mo either the world of motion or it was a phone booth for the land pavilion that I did for um, uh, Doris Woodward, Doris Hardoon at the time, who was on Rolly Crump's team um, and then became kind of like the production designer, I guess, or field art director for the land pavilion. She's the one who designed the carpet walls um, upstairs. And so I did a kind of a, a quaint little, you know, phone booth enclosure for the farmer's market downstairs, which I think was there for a while. And I, I'm sure it's not there anymore because who needs a phone booth? But uh, <laughs> what is it, a phone booth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what is that? Uh, it might have been converted into like a condiment station, but um, it had like a little roof and it had like um, old timey uh, farmer's market lamps. Um, 
I mean, it was, you know, pretty simple. Do you remember how that, how that works, how you go from being a runner and, and doing sort of utility jobs to somebody saying, Hey, we got a phone booth. Do you want to, do you want to take this? Is it just kind of organic and comes up? Yeah. I think uh, my boss, George Windrum said, um, I've got something here for you from, um, for the land pavilion. And that was probably right after the first week. It was probably the second week. And it's seemed almost concurrent with the phone booth was, um, world of motion, um, doing some work on that. And I don't know if it was right immediately away. It may have, may have been a week or two later, but I w- was asked to, um, design the Chinese pagoda and the Greek temple for the, um, for that scene where you got the fast talking salesman and world of motion was the attraction that had like seven art directors on it. <laughs> That was a heck of a thing to start on to figure out who I was supposed to be listening to. Did you have seven bosses in that? Uh, because of I had that? seven opinions uh, <laughs> running by my desk. Yeah. But I think what happened was that um, Ward Kimball took Mark's place because uh, because uh, Ward was going to go out to the field and and personally art direct it um, in Florida, and so. It might have been that um, that Ward wanted to add or change some things once the model had more or less been done, and so. Uh, so what's your were, what's your role in that? You you describe something like getting concept art. So there's like a, an art director, and then they do some concept art of the, the design, the color, the general things, and then it comes to you after that. I should clarify what I was in the what was called the show set design department, which was another drafting unit. Um, so they had architectural drafting, gotcha, um, and engineering drafting, which was in a different building, and then show set design. And so that's where I was, and uh, as an apprentice. And so um, I, I learned years later that what I was working on was what was known in the business, in the film business, as a holiday. This was something um, that I just learned recently in a book somewhere where someone grabbed Walt Disney and said, we've got a holiday um, or no, Walt grabbed this art director and says, we've got a holiday and we need you to fix it. He's like, what are you talking about a holiday? Well, it means someone took a holiday and forgot to design something for the <laughs> <Okay>. area <laughs> yeah. of the, you know, in the, of the film or in this case of the ride, it's like a blank space. That, right. And so um, these little holidays—they didn't use that term—but that's what that's what yeah, I was no. working on. Were some holidays that showed up, and so um, they wanted me. Well, I think let's see who I think it was Ward Kimball who was working with me on this, which he just asked for um, the, a design for a Chinese pagoda and for a Greek temple, and so I did that. Um, drafted something up for the model builders to build. And, um, and, and, you know, I've looked, I still have those drawings and they're very, you know, <laughs> I, you know, almost embarrassing, but the model shop saved me and made them uh, a little bit better than, than what I drew up. Shortly after that, Claude Coates came around. I think it was Claude. I'm pretty sure it was Claude. Um, and he asked me same thing. They had a holiday in a big holiday, which was like a whole scene. Maybe they had another scene in there and it was thrown out. 
um, but they wanted to do a hot air balloon scene and, um, and they didn't have anything except the space for it. And, um, and Claude had gathered up some research of old French hot air balloons. And so that was my direction was to come up with a scene, um, for a hot air balloon. Yeah. So, hot air balloons. so you're, you're at WED for a short period of time. We, you know, two or three weeks, two or three weeks. Yeah. And now you have Claude Coates, uh, Disney legend, Claude Coates coming up to you to yeah. ask to design an entire scene for the world of motion attraction. What is yeah. going through your mind at that time? I just like, I guess this is what I got to do. How does that translate as a draftsman, as an apprentice draftsman to now be designing a show scene? That seems like very different skill sets. Yeah. And I kind of thought, um, well, maybe they have this by mistake or something, or maybe they're asking 20 people to do this mm. and I'm just one of them. Yeah. Um, who knows? And so, uh, or it could have been, you know, Tony Baxter was very close uh, with Claude. So maybe Tony put in a good word with Claude. Um, no one ever explained it. It was just kind of like next. Okay. This. And um, so I did some research you know, and I think, you know, uh, Claude said it would be nice if there was, was like a French uh, countryside scene since the hot air balloons were first developed or flown in France. So I, um, I drew up some rooftops, some French provincial rooftops, and that, that was the kind of thing I was good at. And that sort of thing probably was in my portfolio. Um, so they may have had that information that I could do something like that, half timbered buildings. And, um, but they needed like a gag. There was no, there was no like point to the scene, I guess. Um, and so I'm like, I'm going to come up with a gag. They didn't say come up with a gag. <laughs> it's just that, like, well, there's no, you know, I've got to come up with a gag because what else are you going to remember or look at? I think there was some talk maybe about projecting all these hot air balloons, but that someone decided that it needed to be a dimensional scene. And I don't know who that was. So um, then I did this other kind of house, you know, French, and I didn't know that much about French architecture. Um, I knew about half timbered architecture, but um, so I did a scene of, uh, Oh, of like a, there was a steeple, like a church steeple or a monument, and there was like a soldier on top with his sword, and so the hot air balloon was lurching into you know getting very precariously close to the sharp uh, pointed steeple, and so there was kind of an oblivious um, uh, you know guy on the on the hot air balloon, and I think I drew in goats or a goat or a couple of goats. Because what's funnier than goats? And the goat, <laughs> Not much. <laughs> the guy was oblivious; like he doesn't realize the hot air balloon is going to hit the is about to pop. Right. And I thought it was kind of clever. It wasn't done. I still have that sketch, and you know, I look at it, and it's I I was not good at drawing people at that time, and so it was no Mark Davis, you know. But it feels um, like what you described feels very much like a Mark Davis gag. Yeah, and and I'm right. I'm curious to know. Uh, were you trying to go for that aesthetic or was it just something that was, uh, you know, that you absorbed by virtue of just being uh, on the team and, and working? 
I think both, but I was familiar with the other scenes in the show. So, and I had seen, I think Mark's, all of Mark's um, sketches for the world of motion were up on the wall, like right near my office. And so I probably looked at all of those just to get a sense of, you know, making sure that it would fit in the continuity of things. Because I was going to say, and for- I, I just expected it would be rejected and it was. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, you know, I would think that again, you're going for the tone. Like you've, you've nailed yeah. the tone of that attraction at that time. And especially yeah. for your first go, that's pretty impressive. I guess so. Um, you know, I, I was a quick study with that sort of thing. Um, unfortunately, my my illustration skills could never quite catch up to what I always had in my head. And again, I was good with buildings and environments, but not so much with people yet, because I really hadn't taken a life drawing class or anything at that point. And so uh, what I drew up, you know, I showed it to Claude and he said, yeah, uh, it's kind of busy. I don't know if people will get it. Um, and so then it was handed off to someone else, or maybe it went back to Mark. Someone decided it would be, someone, I guess, decided they liked the idea of the kind of somewhat oblivious guy in the balloon and an animal, which turned into a pig, I guess, in the final show. Not as funny as a goat. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the steeple idea was gone. It was just like, Oh, maybe there were people and it might've ended up with people looking in the window, like surprised. I, you know, there's very few photos of that scene and I, you know, I never had a chance really to kind of compare what they kept and what they threw out. Those buildings uh, though, they were for you as an artist, those were grounded in reality. They were grounded in real architecture that really existed in a culture. So you studied that. Well, yes. Um, you know, what I did, I didn't go in, go so far as to research where in France right. were these hot air balloons. So what, you know, what region and, and what I drew up were kind of like Normandy style buildings, uh, which at the time I wouldn't have even known that that was right. what that was called. And so I didn't do that much research. Um, you know, I just went, well, I know how to do half timber buildings and I know what the little villages in Cinderella look like. <laughs> yeah. So, that's kind of what I, you know, drew up. Yeah, I just yeah. think it's it's yeah. interesting in your in your career. It starts in a place, and I think for a lot of us, where it is close to what you're comfortable with, it's close, to, and then and then for you, I mean, it, it starts to it starts to go in all sorts of different directions. But I think I was a little bit um, skeptical too at the same time. Like, why are they asking me? Do they have me mixed up with someone else? Um, is this, I love that that could happen at Disney. They could be like, Hey, could you design this? And you'd be like, Oh, I guess I could. And they're like, Oh no, no, sorry. We met, we met somebody else. Yeah. Right. At what point did you feel you weren't skeptical anymore? Well, it was kind of a quick exercise. I mean, you know, I worked on it for maybe a week. Yeah. Uh, you know, two days of research maybe and scribbling. And then I, um, I had to do drawings that were understandable for the model shop to build. Right. Typically, typically in this case, you would just sketch something up and then someone in the model shop would interpret, mm. you know, they wouldn't have to have working drawings because, you know, the, the model shop is really good at just, you know, taking a sketch and then, and then, uh, plussing it from there. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. And, and I don't, you know, and I think maybe that's just what they did. Maybe they just took my scribbles and, um, and interpret interpreted it from there. I never paid attention because I guess I got really busy afterwards. I never went back like into the model shop to see if they were um, 
doing exactly what I had drawn right. or uh, thrown it out. I was probably afraid that they had just thrown it out. I didn't want to go in there and see it all like completely yeah. thrown out. Well, you, know? you, you move from world of motion to journey into imagination, as you said. And, and I would say that there was probably no greater attraction that had an impact on me when I was a, an 11 year old boy in 1986 than going to journey into imagination. And, so and say too. I'm sorry, you're not the one I've heard that from a lot of people. Wow. I, it's uh, it, it's, I mean, we could, we could do an entire show just on journey into itself. Uh, but that seems to be, uh, is it, is it correct to say that that's your first real assignment at, at Epcot? Yeah. Okay. That's the first dedicated uh, project that I worked on, you know, that I was, um, on the board working on pretty much dedicated on that project for at least a year, maybe a year and a half. And then also went out to the field. Okay. It, to, um, to Orlando. To Orlando. Yep. And then in between that was some work on Fantasyland for Disneyland, the redo in 83. But the work that was being done for that was happening in 81. So what was the feeling like on the journey team as compared to the other pavilions at that time because journey into imagination is just it's such an interesting pavilion uh, in relation to the other pavilion the original epcot pavilions Uh, it it both fits very much with the other pavilions but it also is very very set apart from the others right so did that translate in the teams working on those pavilions i think so i think that um i think there was already some Oh, you know, in-house snarkiness, I might say about, um, oh, you know, this can't be another show with dinosaurs and cavemen. (laughs) I think they were all like this, you know, it's got to be a very different kind of a show and it's about imagination and imagination is fun. And so this has really got to be a fun show. It's got to be kind of the fantasy land of Epcot. The, the, The whole like, what will this pavilion look like? was it seemed like it was two or three months of going around and around maybe it wasn't that long but it seemed like a long time and tony didn't like anything that um was being presented i remember sketching up some things for it that i kind of liked actually (laughs) and he didn't like them um and um what were those things do you remember they usually involved crystals um of the, or rock, you know, kind of crystalline rock. I mean, I think the idea was that this would be an or, organic to some degree, um, kind of a, a look to it to be in contrast with the other pavilions. And, and in fact, at one time, um, the life and health pavilion was scheduled to go on that particular, uh, plot. Of oh, land. interesting. The, the uh, I, I see. So yeah, imagination that, wasn't going to go there originally. Um, imagination wasn't going to be in the park originally. <laughs> uh, it was a last minute ad. Oh, is that right? I didn't realize that. Yeah, it was, um, they had been talking to Kodak, but it hadn't been, um, going anywhere. And then all of a sudden, I mean, Kodak, I guess was expressing interest, uh, prior, you know, a year or two prior, but, but it hadn't been advancing and all of a sudden something happened and it advanced and they said, we want in. And so all the other pavilions were in, you know, um, in the middle of production, you know, they were, they had a long, you know, they, they were in design a year before this. 
at least, you know, some of them longer. Um, so at the last minute, here comes this other pavilion. It was called, it was going to be called images and imagination was the, um, the working title for it. And, and so that's when Tony approached me. This is like the summer, early summer or late spring of 1979. And it's like, hey, you know, this last minute, you know, pavilion is um, on track to open for opening day. And it's based on images and imagination or imagination. And um, we'd like you to be part of the team to help um, lay it out and lay out the ride. And I should say um, it might have partly been I, I think Tony always had me in mind for the ride layout or just to help in general, just be part of the brainstorming and everything for it. Cause now I'm the youngest person probably at Imagineering. And um, so they always like to have, you know, youngsters on the team. So, but this is your yeah. first time uh, designing a track layout for an attraction. I mean, again, Never. your first time <laughs> designing a show scene was just a couple of weeks earlier. Uh, right. now, now this is your first time designing a, a track right. layout. I mean, yeah. what, Approaching that fresh, what are you trying to solve for in in that problem? Is it merely just getting as many people through in as as uh, in a, as time as as is allowed, or is there a, another thing that you're trying to solve for? Uh, all all of the above. I mean, you you always have to keep the capacity in mind, and also you know the speed that you're running through it is kind of. Uh, um, you know, it's kind of the pulse that's the, it's, you know, it's the heartbeat of the attraction, the, di the dispatch interval and the timing and the speed and all of that, which is all interrelated. Um, but, you know, I don't think we got to the ride layout probably until the end of the summer. So this was the first three months was all, what is it? What is the pavilion? Is there a ride? Where presented? were you, where were you in the ride or no ride debate? Well, I was probably in support of a ride um, from the beginning, but, you know, I, I was not very, first of all, I was generally a shy person back then, uh, generally introverted. So it was hard for me to quickly express myself and to keep up with. Uh, so I mostly sat back and, and, you know, listened. Um, but I knew that it seemed like Tony was, was, um, pretty adamant that there'd be a ride element, you know, Tony's all about rides. And I mean, it seemed like it was a natural thing, um, but also that you had to have some kind of an interactive area too, yeah. where people can express their own imagination. And so that was kind of the yin and yang of, yeah, I was uh, going to say, it's, it seems to me that if, if uh, Walt Disney cannot do a ride based on imagination, right. something is seriously wrong. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so it was just, you know, it was, it was, um, and, and there was, you know, there were some stipulations from Kodak that imagery become an important part of this. They're not selling. I thought it was interesting that they early on said, we're not selling, um, cameras and film as much as we're selling memories. At some point it was decided that there would be a ride to introduce you to the concept and the ride would let you out in this playground where you get to now use your own imagination. And I'm trying to remember, oh, the 3D movie was something that was pushed from Kodak. So they wanted, they did want some kind of a motion picture um, experience 
that was like state of the art, high definition, um, you know, that shows you the greatness of photography. And I guess, um, and they also wanted this, you know, moment where they sell the idea of making memories. So that became kind of an idea for the pre-show for this film. So that became a thing that kind of gelled as a thing and the playground interactive playground gelled and the ride gelled. And we also had a fourth element that was eventually for the most part discarded, although there were vestiges of it, which was a, a optical illusion garden Interesting. and, a, and a, a garden of imagination, but a, a, using a lot of optical uh, tricks and illusions like um, zoetropes and praxinoscopes. And um, would that have been outside? Yes. It would have been a garden. And, um, and we did, we, we built a model of it and I laid out a cursory garden with little, just, you know, words, I guess that would just say, you know, praxinoscope fountain or something like that. You know, there was a, there was a moment where we had to, um, you know, put the pencils down after design and then the estimators estimated it. And then we had to knock out about, you know, 30%. Um, out of the entire attraction. So initially, originally, the ride went upstairs and exited upstairs. And so you exited right into the image. Into image, work, image works. Oh, and there was a second turntable. So that's where we got most of the money out for the 30%. <laughs> so <laughs> let, let's talk about that turntable. I, unlike other rides where you know you drive or float by and you don't really spend enough time in a scene, you right. create, in your track layout, you create a carousel that ends up spending a lot of time in one scene. It's almost right. as if uh, there's a five-minute exposition about what you are going to see that follows. And right. and that is that was just so unusual to see yeah. in any attraction. And, yeah. and, and so how did the carousel come about? Um, I think, you know, it was decided early on that if we're going to do – a ride through experience based on imagination, there has to be some kind of setup for it. Otherwise you won't understand what the likely eclectic um, <laughs> group of types of scenes that you would um, see in the attraction. And so that a setup and an explanation at the end would be necessary. So that's what happened. Um, so the, we lost most of the garden except for the, the, um, I think Mark Fuller had already been playing around with the leapfrog fountains and we had seen that in over in special effects. So it's like, well, whatever we do, we got to have the leapfrog fountains out there. The, the carousel show scene is, you know, I would say a defining feature of journey into imagination, uh, both from an aspect of, uh, just technical wizardry in hiding special effects while you're keeping a, a guest staring at one static uh, image for as long as it is right that carousel then gets eliminated when journey into imagination gets completely overhauled in 1998 and the again we talked about the length of the track that gets cut in half and that carousel then becomes both the onboarding and exiting uh, portion right. of the ride my question to you is is what was the motivation for that change that you're aware of because oh, you're still working for the company at the time aren't you yeah, but by then I was working on Paris uh, and I was in Paris or I was in Europe half the time. Um, it was, I think, after Disneyland Paris opened, but I was still traveling back and forth for five years 
um, working on additions and, and changes and um, stuff like that. So I had very little um, insight. And in fact, I think the Walt Disney World creative group was in a different building. So uh, I was never asked to come look at it. I, I knew that they were making some changes. I had no idea they were taking the turntable away which seemed like a shame yeah i was gonna uh, say how did how does that how did that feel for you how does that feel for you and the and the team that worked on that uh, tony shared his opinions on what journey into imagination became uh, yeah and you know and i think fans have been very very vocal about what they feel about that attraction how does it feel like you you know you as one of the artists and designers on that attraction well at the time i guess i just it I was, you know, you get so busy that you don't get so involved in those things or, or even so emotionally attached, I guess. Yeah. So, and I probably made an assumption that, you know, whatever they'll do, they do, it'll be as good or better. And um, so, but I, I, I didn't, I have to say, I didn't know that they were taking the turntable out. And so I guess when I wrote it the first time, I was, you know, obviously a little bit disappointed. Sure. Um, I think, you know, I'm probably more disappointed now and more from the standpoint of a kind of a, of an executive, which I became like, why would you throw something out like that, that you had made such an investment on that was so unique that could have, you know, if you didn't like the Dreamfinder and Figment and the balloon, you could have put another show in there, but you know, it was a platform for doing something special, which is while you're riding in motion, you're able to convey what you would normally convey in a static theatrical environment. And you could do some really cool tricks with it because there's stuff that's moving and stuff that's not moving. Let's turn from something that is, uh, has changed from what it originally was to something that I think one would argue probably won't change very much. And that's Sleeping Beauty's castle in Disneyland Paris, which you had a very, very large hand in, uh, in designing. And so you, but you were not originally, uh, assigned to design the castle. So no. how, how was it that you ended up becoming the designer of Sleeping Beauty's castle? This was the one, um, time, I guess, in my career where I made a move, you know, where I, I became pushy and, um, thought, you know, it was a little bit like, you know, this is my chance, but it was also, I know I can do it. I, I wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't have been something I would have stuck my neck out um, if I didn't think, you know, I couldn't do it. So um, yeah. So I was working actually on Disneyland projects uh, at the time, this is 1986, 87. And I think the, um, the show producers for Disneyland Paris were assigned at the end of 1986 and I was still working on um, some Disneyland projects. I was working in the SQS office down there uh, for Kim Irvine and, um, and also working with Tony on the Star Tours facade and, um, and some other proposals for Disneyland. And so I was not part of the Disneyland Paris team, but I had gone that summer of 86 to Europe and spent a month in Europe just by coincidence. You know, it was just something I always wanted to do was to just drive through the countryside and go to these, you know, villages and go to Mont Saint-Michel and all of these places. And um, so I did that. I came back with hundreds of photographs of these, you know, fantasy land looking buildings and various castles I had gone to. 
And um, so that must have made an impression, at least in the back of Tony's mind, that there was already a show producer working on Fantasyland. And so I went about, I think I started working with Jeff Burke on early concepts for Indiana Jones. And then... Um, at at Paris? Had, I'm sorry, at Paris? No, no, Indiana Jones for Disneyland. Oh, for Disneyland. Yeah. Um, so I was not, I had nothing to do with Paris, but then one day I did. So <laughs> the show producer for, for Paris, for Fantasyland was moved to Disneyland, I believe. So they were moving people around. So that opened up Fantasyland, but work had already been started. And so that's why the caveats were made hands off the castle and hands off. It's a small world. Those are already being handled. Um, but you've got the rest and in the case of the castle, it was being handled by six or seven different people um, that were all working on different ideas. I think they had just opened it up, you know, just like, why does it have to be a castle? So Interesting. Uh, what were yeah. some of the other ideas? <laughs> well, they were mostly castles, but one, uh, Tim Delaney came up with a really cool, not a castle. You know, it was a, a vertical icon that was kind of Art Nouveau mm. um, styled. And, you know, I guess you could call it a castle, but it was not like any castle that we had ever done before. And it was pretty cool. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, but they didn't want to do it, or they being, you know, management. And um, and then there were two or three other people more qualified, maybe technically, than, than me to do, to try to do a castle. They were either architects or they had worked on the Cinderella castle for mm-hmm. Walt Disney World and knew a thing or two about castles and... Um, but Tony wasn't too happy with what was happening, but that was all kind of off on the side. I was focused on, I was too focused and was focused on, um, on finishing up what was started in fantasy land and handling some of the architecture that they hadn't gotten to yet and made, you know, was making minor tweaks and added the idea of the toad hall. They wanted to do a restaurant, but it wasn't toad hall. And it was just kind of another half timber building that wasn't anything that you'd remember. And I thought, you know, this, anything you do should be something that you want to take a picture of and remember, oh, we ate in Toad Hall, not just another random um, ye old building. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I was, I was already kind of maybe going a little bit um, out of bounds with those kinds of decisions. And so, but I wanted to do the castle and I kept, bugging Tony, you know, I'm telling you, I can do it. Cause I hear him kind of complain that no one's been able, they've been working on it now for two months or three months and no one's come up with anything. They don't get what he's um, trying to convey to them. Mm. And I said, well, I get exactly what you're trying to convey. Cause he was saying, you know, obviously it can't be Cinderella castle from Florida because Cinderella castle is based on specifically Loire Valley castles that are an hour and a half away from Disneyland Paris. And also a lot of other castles in that area are are very similar. It can't really be a national geographic, true reproduction um, of a castle as you would expect to find. It had to be some kind of storybook um, castle. And that's where people were having a problem. And I was watching it kind of, you know, in slow motion. Were you already seeing it in your head? Like what you would design if you were given Starting. the shot? Yeah. Starting. Because I had designed, you know, I had, uh, I had, had admired 
Ivan Durrell, of course, you know, um, growing up and reading the art of animation and seeing Sleeping Beauty. And um, so I thought I could do a castle. You know, I've been scribbling them ever since I was 16 years old. And I'm opinionated about what a castle should look like. Yeah. And, um, and I knew and I could all do these it, other people are not doing it. They're not getting it done. So there's an opening. They're not getting it done. He said, but Tony said, uh, yeah, but I've, you know, there's six people, six or seven people working on it. It's over budget already. Right. I can't afford to put another person on it. And I said, well, I'll do it in the meantime. I'll do it in my spare time. And he said, well, as long as you, uh, you know, as it doesn't take away from what you're doing on the rest of the job. So um, I pretty quickly put together, a, you know, I just started gathering reference material. Yeah, yeah. I know what he's talking about. Um, I know exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about a larger version of Sleeping Beauty Castle at Disneyland with more of a rock work presence yeah. around it. And, um, and then I was thinking, and it's got to, you know, if you're a kid, you got to look up to it and just wonder about every little staircase and every little window and door. And where does that lead to turrets that come out of other turrets? Exactly. And, um, and, you know, I was kind of disappointed in some respects with some aspects of both the castle in California and in Florida, like the. There were no, where were the beautiful stained glass windows? No stained glass windows, just like um, pebble window that you got at the hardware store, shower, shower glass, I guess you called it. (laughs) And uh, like, what? (laughs) So this has got to have beautiful stained glass. And so I, um, I just went into books that were like N.C. Wyeth had done. I remember some beautiful uh, castles and his books about Robin Hood and, um, and King Arthur. And then Gustav Tengren was always a huge, huge, like he was my favorite before Ivan Earl was Gustav Tengren who did the Pinocchio. He was the production designer and the person who the look of Pinocchio was all um, patterned after. Yeah. And, um, and his, the silhouettes of his castle, they weren't very detailed when you got close to them, but, but they you know, they had a, a beautiful look to them. And I remembered an important lesson from how to draw Mickey Mouse or how, how to draw Chippendale or one of those books that you got at Disneyland, or maybe it was in the art of animation where it stressed the importance of, of uh, silhouettes. I love that an art book for kids provides a real world skill or a real world thing to keep in mind that yes. ends up uh, contributing to the look of Sleeping Beauty Castle. So something that only came as a result of Sleeping Beauty Castle in Anaheim then feeds into a lesson learned for you to build Sleeping Beauty Castle in Paris. And I like that, like you sometimes, at least me being an artist, I I look at some of those books and I go, yeah, but does anybody who read those books actually ever become an artist? And the answer is, yeah, they end up designing Sleeping Beauty's Castle or whatever. So (laughs) there's at least one. Yeah. They go on to become, you know, Marvel comic artists or so many different things. And, um, you know, the art of animation was a very instructive, uh, book for me, uh, for a number of reasons. Um, and so that silhouette lesson was an important one. And I started, I went about, you know, that's, that's where I started was with a silhouette. Um, after I had gathered some, um, scrap, you would call it, you know, research material. Do you make like a vision board for this? I made a vision board, which I, I used to have in my office. And then I made sure to take photos of it. And then it disappeared. And then I figured it went to the art library 
But the art library, if they have it, they haven't scanned it yet. And I can't find my photographs of it. So, so I, I made that board and Tony really liked it. And, um, but then he said, let's make sure because I've got so-and-so nagging me. Why aren't we doing the Cinderella castle from Florida? It's a beautiful castle. And so he wanted me to, to, um, put together a board that showed we can't because here's all the castles nearby. And so, um, the library at WED at the time, um, had this big book of, um, of single plate photographs of the Loire Valley castles. Like, um, there must've been 50 beautiful, like, um, 11 by 17 size black and white photographs of Loire Valley castles. And it wasn't long before going through those. I'm like, Oh, there are the lower turrets <laughs> that Walt Disney world use. There's this window. There's that, uh, gabled roof there, you know? So I was able to take like 12 of those 50 photographs and circle the parts that were used. <laughs> Um, on the castle. And it really made, I don't even know if I circled. I think I just put the 12 up on yeah. a bulletin board and you looked at it and you went, oh, there's the Walt Disney World castle. Right. And you go, oh, wait a minute. You look up closer and it says Chateau Us, Chateau, you know, the names of the real castles. So the oh, argument would be yeah. if, if you do that, then in Paris, it's too close and it would look derivative right away. And, and, and it, it wouldn't look original. It would look like, wow, you guys really hodgepodge together all of our, all the castles we love and see all the time. Thanks. And I think the main thing is that, I mean, you could argue it a number of ways. You could argue that it's a tribute right, um, to the castles. But so, why have to make that argument yeah. if you can just create something that is wholly well, unique? Yeah, the argument that we made is it has to be extraordinary. It can't just yeah. be, okay, great. We get an A in architecture for being able to faithfully, um, you know, create a pastiche of local castles. So I was going to ask you, so many of these castles are getting rejected and stuff like that. I was going to ask you, when do you know yours is, is, you know, you don't want to show something to somebody before it's fully developed and have them rejected out of hand, especially when they're on a rejection train. But it sounds like you're getting yeah. buy-in along the way. Your mood board's getting looked at, uh, yeah. rough concepts are looking at. So you're getting encouragement before you have to say, the, you know, here's what I think, here's what I think it should yeah. look like. And I think I just drew up, it's not a very good sketch. Um, I mean, it's not, it's not shaded. You know, I didn't right. have, I would have liked to have shaded it. I guess I could still do that. Uh, <laughs> Maybe yeah, don't. When, when you recreate your, <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, your vision board, yeah. you can do whatever you right. want. Revisionist history. But, uh, it was, a, it was just a, you know, a line. Yeah, it was it, lying. It looked like a, uh, a, kind of like the way a layout artist would pencil the layout in an animation production yeah. without too much shading and without any color or anything and um, kind of like coloring book yeah. style. I did like two or three of those before I kind of landed on something that I liked. Right. And then I just showed it to Tony and he liked it. Yeah. And said, but you know, it's just a drawing and um, the drawing doesn't prove anything or mean anything. It's got to go to model. Right. And so he assigned a couple model builders on it. And then I think he wanted me to kind of stay out of it at that point. Like, okay, you've done, you've made your point. You've got the, uh, your argument all lined up here. And um, now let the model builders do their magic, which yeah. I probably should have done, Yeah, but I didn't. I was, um, 
I was protective and possessive. So say, yeah. this, is your, this is your child now, right? This yeah. is your baby. Kind of. And I know, you know, and I'm, I'm willing, I mean, as if the, if the model builders are doing it, that's great. Then I, you know, then I can lay back, but they were not interpreting it in my opinion very well. And um, the person who was doing the rock work on the hill was making the rock work look exactly like Splash Mountain. Okay. Rock which was, you know, just being finished up um, and, you know, was something that they knew that Tony loved that. And we weren't necessarily doing a Splash Mountain for Paris. So, um, but I thought it looked awfully funny and it wasn't either Neural, you know, so I, um, part of the thing that I sold Tony on was that, you know, we can make this an Ivan Earl looking setting, not the yeah. castle as much because, you know, the Ivanderall castles that are as depicted in the film are not well-defined and they're a little bit sharp and a little bit um, bland, if yeah. I may say so. I, oh, sorry, Ivan, but <laughs> we'll I stand feel back. terrible saying that. But, <laughs> but, you know, that's not what you looked at. You looked at the whole scenery of the forests and, yeah. the, and the cliffs and the rivers and all of that. And the castles were kind of the least expensive, or at least the least um, important pieces of those background paintings. Selfish art question really quickly. I bet when most of our listeners are listening to this and they're thinking, Oh, what would I, what would I make the castle look like if I got that job? And I, I, I bet a majority of them are seeing it from head on just straight at the head on, but castles are like villages. You know I mean? There's so many parts of them. Are you designing how it's looking from behind and how it, it grows back? And then I mean, they're just yeah. such complicated things when you're not thinking about them just straight on and that they have to look good from well, the left and the right and behind and all that. Totally. I had the, my Christmas tree theory is that it's like, it's gotta be like a Christmas tree and it looks good from every single angle. And, and I was very impressed by Walt Disney world's castle in that respect, that every single angle looks great. And the Disneyland castle of course, it's always beautiful, but there's it definitely looks better from some some angles right, than from others. Right. Yeah. But the one in Florida looks beautiful from every single angle. So that yeah. was floating around in the back of my head. Also floating around in the back of my head is how dare I <laughs> do this? Well, that was gonna be that was actually gonna be one of my questions, Tom. Was like, how, I mean, uh, you know, you were designing a castle on a continent filled with actual real castles. So right. what is going through your mind? Are you nervous at all about that? Do you feel empowered? Do you just feel super confident? Like what is going on in Tom Morris's mind? I've never designed a castle before and I'm putting it in Europe. I'm more concerned about internal at Disney yeah. than I am about um, France and Paris. I'm concerned about France and Paris, but I know that we're doing something that's different and that is um, going to not be compared. I mean, you know, doing something that would like a tribute piece um, runs the risk of how dare you versus coming up with a complete fantasy kind of thing that has yeah. little tributes yeah. in it, but in, in aggregate is a, is a fantasy, something out of a, a storybook. I was going to say, are you going into the film archives for this? I, we went, eventually we went down into that morgue that was under the animation building, at, which was weird. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you use the tunnel, the, the, the tunnel between the buildings to get there? Well, it's in the whole animation building. It has a basement, all the wings and, and the center of it. And then there's that tunnel. Um, 
but it was under some part of the animation building was where the morgue for all the drawings and background paintings were, as I recall. And then there was a, uh, an old man who uh, was down there. <laughs> the mortician. <laughs> the mortician. And um, named Leroy, I think. And we said, you know, um, we're here, you know, we made an appointment and we're here. We want to see um, either layout sketches or background paintings, if the layouts aren't there, for Sleeping Beauty, for the rock work, uh, you know, all of the landscape, the landscape, not so much the castle, uh, but the landscape shots. And it's like, well, we don't have hardly any of the... um, of the layout, black and white layouts, you're going to have to take the colored background paintings. The originals. The originals. Yeah. Which were <laughs> uh, usually in tubes. They would, they were able to tear off the first epidermis of the Bainbridge illustration board and roll them up. Wow. Which, so they were in rolls, which was just amazing. I was going to say, how is that for you? You're a Disney fan. How is that for you as an Imagineer to go into a place of history like that and be able to access these pieces of sacred original art? Yes. How, how does well, that feel for you as a, as a Disney fan? Um, or okay. Just, it's like a job. It's really like, how are we getting, you know, I'm, I'm worried about the rock work that they're not getting it you know, that they're not understanding this and they're moving. And Tony might actually buy into the splash right. thing. I didn't know because it's, he likes splash fountain. You know, why does it have to be Ivan Earl rock? Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> you're divorcing your fandom <laughs> yeah. from the job at hand. Totally. Yeah, totally. Plus it's weird down there. It's not, I have to say now it's <laughs> wonderful, but it's called the animation research library now. And it's on flower street across from Imagineering. So, and it's state of the art, humidity controlled, light controlled, pH controlled, all of that. And it's organized and everything is just, it couldn't be in a better place now, but it but wasn't at the time, at the time it was in a dank, it was Leroy's domain basement with water running down, you know, some of the walls. And, um, I just remember it being, what is all this precious art yeah. doing down here like this rolled up? and folded and, you know, behind chain link fence. And it's just bizarre. Um, so we picked out like 10 pieces, I guess. Um, and he's like, okay, you know, he write, wrote them down. And I'm like, well, now what do we do? Because I wanted the black and white layouts, not the color paintings the layouts is what we need and we i can put the black and white layouts on a xerox machine and get these things back to leroy you know tomorrow but no what am I supposed to do the, with these original ivan earl yeah. paintings yeah. <laughs> exactly which really you know i wasn't going to leave them out in the uh, model shop so we sent them out to get um photographed right away in color and it was really expensive. It's funny, you know, now you just take a picture of it with your phone and it yeah, would do the job. Right. But um, they had to send it to Color House. That's the only place we send our stuff to. And it was expensive. And I got a call about why are you having, you know, all this work done? And um, I had to explain, you know, and, um, you know, we don't, we can't 
get this thing off the TV. Oh, they actually did. They brought a TV. So they brought a TV in. <laughs> so these renderings sat in my office while someone said, no, before you do that, we have a one inch videotape machine and we just bought this image capture contraption um, that you can capture the image on the screen from. And it was this clunky yeah. thing that, you know, first of all, one inch tape, you know, and then you couldn't freeze frame it. You couldn't get the frame that you wanted. <laughs> you just had to so kind of go for it. Rewinding it and fast forwarding it. And then you'd stop it and then the, it would be jittering. Yeah. And, um, and then it was like a Polaroid kind of a machine, you know, Polaroid type images uh, that would come off this thing and it would take like 30 seconds. It seems so it, absurd, again, given the fact that you have the original that's like sitting behind you. Like it's rolled up in a tube over here. Let me just. No, but it's it. going to cost like $1,500 to um, more than that, like $3,000 to photograph those. Mm. So we'll just get a, a screen cap yeah. instead. <laughs> Yeah, get a, a Polaroid cut. resolution. Yeah, and so I brought. I remember bringing the guy over there, going, "Look, now you try to do this," <laughs> and he's like, "Okay, I get it," you know. Um, and so we went out and and got them um, finally photographed, and I got them the originals safely back to uh, Leroy. Yeah, and um, and that was something. Um, and then you know, I think I enlisted the help of Skip Lang, who was the kind of the, at the time, the godfather of, uh, of sculpting, you know, doing great rock work sculptures along with John Olson was another one. And Skip understood. So I think once I had those photographs and I had Skip, then we got the model builders off to the right. Uh, I think I ended up actually drawing more or less what they had to sculpt, um, not, not texturally, but just the basic shape and form of it. I remember, cause I still have the um, tissues of here's, you know, it doesn't want to be too fussy and it doesn't want to be too plain. There's a little Goldilocks right. art in there where um, it's just right. Well, it's just so asymmetrical too. That, it is. That I would yeah, imagine the thing about to, it, yeah. to translate it from a, a 2d sketch into a model must have been very challenging, especially if it's not the person who designed it and has it in their brain. Right. right. And so then, you know, once kind of the rockwork base was sort of worked out, um, and then came the castle itself. And that they were struggling with that. And I remember just finally getting some, it's like, I, I don't want to, you know, handhold you or micromanage this, but take these dowels, um, of various diameters, wooden dowels. And before you do anything, just arrange the dowels as close to the picture as you can. Yeah. And then walk around it and make sure that that arrangement of dowels kind of holds its um, majesty. The, right. the dowels sort of acting as stand-ins for the towers? Yeah. 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 Just the masses, just to mass it in so that you don't have a, you walk around here, it looks really good from this angle, but then you walk over here and there's a big gaping hole in it. And um, so that's how we did it. And I kept coming out there like every day and I moved the dowels around a little bit and they probably got pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And at some and point, they I don't get, know, maybe not. It could have been, you know, it could be also just, you know, I was uh, intimidated. Nah, probably. they had a bet. Do you think Tom will notice? We moved him a little bit. You think when he comes in tomorrow, he'll, yeah. he'll notice that they're moved? He always does. He right. always does. He moves them right back. Well, we also got an architect on board, Mark Kalesko, who was from outside the company. Um, but he had done, I think he had worked on, on Fantasyland, uh, the 83 redo. And um, so he was my guy, my partner on this. And we worked together because at some point, structural integrity sure. was, um, had to be factored into this as yeah. well. And so he kind of kept both the model builders and myself um, uh, on a reality check. And there were some things that's like, you know, this tower absolutely has got to go here and not there because if we move it here and you can do anything, I mean, look at the tree house or the Matterhorn. I mean, you know, so it's not true that, you know, from a structural standpoint, it has to go here. It just means that it might cost a little bit more money. Right. Um, to move it or to offset it. So we made the decisions where we would offset versus um, put it in the most cost-effective way. How do you know when you're drawing this thing, designing this thing, thinking up this thing, artboarding this thing, that you're even in the ballpark for the right cost? Like, how do you know what your castle's costing as you're designing it? Do you have some knowledge or just go like, here it is, guys, what do you think? Oh, well, there was a budget for it. The budget was based on Cinderella Castle. Okay. Um, so... We made this castle a little shorter and we didn't put a restaurant in it. We decided not to make it all out of fiberglass because we thought that that might make it more expensive because the, um, the general way they build things in, in Europe is concrete and steel. So you had the previous budget and you figured if you don't, you don't do as, if we don't go as grand as that one, we'll at least be kind of safe as far as the cost goes. That makes sense. Well, I kind of knew by then that you, you, no one knows how tall these castles are. I mean, right. you know if you know that Cinderella Castle is taller than Sleeping Beauty Castle at Disneyland, but if something's only twenty feet shorter than the other, the perspective compensates yeah, right. for that. And so you don't know, you know, you don't really. I've never heard that the one in in that anyone's thought that the one in um, Paris is too short. Or even shorter. I mean, I've never, I've never heard anyone say, "Why did you make it shorter?" Yeah, well, there's no. such a there's such a lead up to it as well. And, yeah, and, and that goes to looks, the rock. It almost looks it. taller than the one. Yeah. It might. I, you know, it's forced perspective. So once you're into the world of forced perspective, once you do it right, um, your brain doesn't really know what the actual yeah. height of it is. So uh, what, it what, knows if it's, it no, kind of knows if it's too short, but it doesn't, once you're up above 160 feet or so, you know, it's all kind of the same. Yeah. Interesting. So once this gets translated from models into actual fiberglass, steel, concrete, and, and you're looking at it in its majesty as it's finished, uh, how, how does it feel on the opening day when guests first start coming in? Were you, were you there on opening day? Oh yeah. You were. Yeah. And so how was it, Because you know, Disneyland Paris, Euro Disney at the time plagued with a lot of different problems. Not one right. of them was ever a criticism of the castle as far as I'm aware. So how was it for guests experience and you observing guests? I think it was really good, um, but we made the same error that Disneyland made, which was not um, opening it with a walkthrough. So, and it was a bigger error in Europe because 
everyone's used to going to a castle and going upstairs to the vantage point and taking the vantage point shot and having their picture taken from below, looking up and vice versa. Right. So that was something I knew from observation and knew from having visited um, almost all 50 of those castles (laughs) that were in that book um, that that was going to be a problem, but it's like, well, wait and see. And sure enough, it was, I don't think it was, you know, people weren't like really mad or anything, but it was clearly they wanted to go upstairs. Was that in your original proposal was to have something like that, a vantage point? Um, I think we prepared for it, but I knew I wasn't going to push for it being a walkthrough and opening day because we were already apparently, you know, a little over budget with it. Um, So... I think once they kind of counted, what what drove it over budget was the dragon, of course, and the dragon's lair. But then that kind of got offset because it got uh, more or less counted as an attraction. Mm. The, the, so, the dragon's so lair. The, yeah. So yeah. the increased um, cost went along with increased um, usable, I guess, scope. You know, that the, they realized they could use that instantaneous capacity of people. Uh, being down there and looking at it. I was going to so, say that that must have offset some of the frustration because whereas uh, most people can go up to an advantage, you know, uh, have a have a vantage point on real castles, they can't go under the castle to see a sleeping dragon. Yeah, nobody can do that. Yeah. And I was very uh, passionate about making a whole kind of, you know, walkway around the moat. You know, you could walk all around the moat. You could go under the drawbridge. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I guess that didn't happen. That was on the original model, but um, but certainly there was like a little trail that you could go. Then that trail leads into the dragon's lair, and then there's a trail that leads up from there into the center of the castle, into the Merlin shop, and another trail that goes back to the uh, area where Snow White is. And so, um, yeah, that was all great, and uh, you know it was. I think they realized they needed the extra space and they needed the, you know, that they could use the extra attraction, if you will. Yeah. Again, this, you know, before the internet, internet or right at the internet and certainly before YouTube, I I remember just hearing stories about that, that there was a dragon underneath Sleep Muse Castle in Paris that you can actually see. And that just igniting my imagination and just amazed that that would be something that you could go visit. And uh, of course it wasn't until a lot later uh, when you could see YouTube videos and that sort of thing. But I, again, just one of those amazing, in addition to the, the, the magical look of the castle itself, the fact that there was this layer underneath the castle that you could visit, uh, it just heads and shoulders makes the Sleeping Beauty castle in Paris, something that is amazing. Yeah. It's one of a kind. That's yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I know you're reporting to, or, or, you know, having your artwork and your designs looked at by Tony Baxter. Is there any conversation, anything, any rumors about just Eisner's opinion? Is he involved at that level or is he pretty hands off on that? Those he will be involved um, as soon as we, I think as soon as we got to a certain point on the model and we had the vision board and we had my sketch and I can't remember when we first showed it to Michael, uh, but I remember showing it to Michael once the model was done um, to a certain point and that he liked it. He had some comment about one of the turrets or something. So we changed it. I think maybe, oh yeah, no, this is the meeting where he said, where he suggested that we look at 
um, Le Trevi Schuller by the Duke de Berry, which is a, a book of these beautiful illuminated manuscripts. Um, and he said, it's very beloved to all French people and it's very fantastical. And, um, and I think it's right up your alley for what you're doing here. And we'd be able to kind of point to some things and say, yeah, yeah this was inspired by that. Mm. And, um, I looked at all of those and went, well, we're, we can't go back and redesign the castle to look like one of these. And what can we do? You know, and it, basically on every castle that was indicated in there and in the original books that were, um, the books that were issued was real gold leaf in the oh, books. Wow. <laughs> and so that was kind of part of the DNA of these, um, of these illustrations in that book. And so I was like, well, we can make sure that we put gold leaf on yeah. all of the, you know, yeah. I mean, already we were going to do that, but we did it a little bit more, yeah. maybe more than we needed to in some spots. I but, hear from uh, Raleigh. It's in Disney tradition to use up the world's supply of gold leaf on a, on attractions. Yeah. So, well, it isn't really that expensive and that's the, you know, the, the fallacy is it's, it's something that sounds, um, extravagant, right. You know, it sounds self-indulgent or whatever, but it's actually cost effective because you don't need to touch it for another 20 years. Yeah. Um, so all these buildings in France that you see with a gold leaf, they, you know, they go around. It's like the, you know, the, uh, the golden gate bridge. There's always a team of people somewhere in Paris that it's re gold leafing one of the monuments, but each monument doesn't need to be re right. gold leafed, you know, probably every 20 years versus paint yeah. which generally needs to be redone every seven or eight years now especially gold paint which never really looks gold so after even like a few months gold paint begins to look just olive colored yeah so tom so, taking yeah. a look back at at disneyland paris uh you know especially in the different cycles of of going from euro disney to disneyland paris and and taking a look at the the long standingness of the castle, what is your reflection on it? How do you feel? Is it is it like a, a parental pride? Is it uh, just a something that goes in your your resume or your portfolio? How how do you view it now? These many kind of years it kind later? of felt like it was my duty. It was my duty to Disney and France hmm. to do this castle right. Yeah. Um, you know, I had in my mind what I knew it needed to be to be not too French. And, um, and just French enough, you know, that it has a French accent, yeah. <laughs> but that yeah, it is a, a realistic depiction, um, nor does it ignore, um, you know, the tr rich traditions of France. And what was most important to me was that it be a unique castle, not the castle in Florida, as beautiful as it is, um, because in my opinion, every park the castle needs to be a unique castle yeah. for each park it's like a face it's like Absolutely. a personality and um you know the models are always cute and beautiful right. and sometimes we forget to get down to eye level and look at them the way a guest is going to look at them but i always made sure you know to thoroughly do that but there's this point in time and it just has to do with prevailing conditions of the sun and um, you know, it's not painted yet. And there's a bunch of other gack in the way and you go, Oh my God, the scale is off on this thing. Mm. Or, 
you know, this thing doesn't look right. And you worry about it. And um, in my worrying about it, worried, I'm sure worried some of the um, higher ups, you know, that I'd be going, oh, maybe we should uh, take another look at this. But um, I don't think we made really any changes. There were some color modifications um, that came about kind of last minute. Uh, and that didn't go over too well. But, and that wasn't necessarily something I was passionate about, but, um, but, you know, when you have scaffolding in front of something too, the scaffolding throws um, shadows on it. The shadows can sometimes create optical illusions that something's crooked um, or leaning. Well, and it betrays the forced perspective like you were talking about as well. So, yeah. So it's something you got to get through um, because I, I can't think of a project that I've ever worked on where there wasn't some moment where it looks awful and you go home worrying about it and staying up late yeah. at night. So I was a worry wart almost the whole way through. How do you push thing. past that? How do you push the, you know, that, that moment? I think because it was my first big thing like that, it was your first that castle. was a big visible, you know, architectural thing um, that, you know, it was, it was my greenness that, um, was at work. And so, um, it wasn't until a couple of years after the park opened that I kind of finally calmed down and like, Oh, it looks pretty good. I guess it does People look like good. It. it does look yeah. good. <laughs> and then it, got, it started to look better, <laughs> you know, every passing year as all of the angst and everything was now, you know, passed. Um, you know, so I'm pretty proud of it. Yeah. And, um, I think, but it it wasn't be. I think it's it, a unique, it's such or, a unique thing that, that you get as an art. I mean, how many people in the world, how many artists in the world, uh, get to have that, you know, just that part of that creation of, I, I sketched a castle and now there it is in like real life. It, it, it was pretty, you know, I guess I kind of had to keep either pinching myself or yeah. grounding myself also, but also, you know, it, I, it was the form and the sh- overall shape of the castle that I was, that I was um, micromanaging, if you right. will. But but a lot of the beautiful heroic pieces in it were totally from the imaginations of people like Brian Jowers and Lynn Itamura and um, uh, Kasperowicz. Uh, what is his first name? I just he he was one of the architects on it, and he did most of the. Um, interiors a lot of the interior john john kasperowicz god how could i forget um and so you know i i can look at gargoyles or windows i did a few of the windows myself but um but a lot of other people did oh the those beautiful windows were you know done by um i think kim irvine and julie svensson some combination of kim irvine julie svensson and um and Robert um, Carlyle, Steve Cargyle, God, my God, Steve Cargyle, who um, who bird dogged the stained glass windows at the vendors as they were being constructed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the guy in London who created those five magnificent ones upstairs, um, you know, and Lynn Itamura, who designed the Merlin shop. I mean, that's almost hundred percent her yeah. and David Berkey who did the holiday shop, but that shop is almost hundred percent him. 
And I can name all these names of all the people that did the stencils and the tapestries and all of that. So my, my job was kind of the outer skin of it to, you know, again, the silhouette and the, and the overall shape. And I did work on the, you know, a lot on the towers. Um, but that was not even half of it. Yeah. Well, uh, Tom, we've been, uh, again, you've been more than generous with your time. <laughs> of course, uh, it's just so fascinating. It's that's so all. fascinating, and and we, we skipped over so much stuff too. We didn't talk enough about Iser, and fact, didn't even get to the big question. Well, so the, are but, we going to get to it? But there is one question that we need to get to. Oh before, no! Before we wrap up, so, so me, scared. Bob's and Banthos, and more specifically, Aaron has a burning question that we believe you are probably the best person to answer. And so I'm going to turn this over and let Aaron ask it. Okay. Well, first, first of all, you you did work or a, a lot of the work on the, the, the animated Mickey's above the star trader. Right. Man. I yeah, love that. Was, that was, that was another one that I, I, I didn't micromanage it, but that yeah. was something that I had to push for, believe it or not. Well, because, good. Uh, thank you for pushing for yeah, that. That, that, yeah. that, that thing is something that I stand alone as a 45 year old as a 40 year old and just stare at it as an adult and feel like a kid. And it just, the whole world goes away. And I just look at that sequence over and over and over and over again and think like there is something so magical about that sequence. I don't know what it is. I just enjoy the cool air of Tomorrowland and staring at that thing. That's well, not the question, but it's funny. Let me just say okay. really quickly, my 12 year old, I was telling him, he, he said, you know, what are you doing on Bob's this week? And I said, Oh, we're going to talk to Tom Morris again. And I said, you remember Mickey Star Traders, the, the uh, astronaut Mickey that floats outside of Star Traders? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, Tom, Tom drew that. And his response was, I love neon. <laughs> yeah, well, it's amazing. Okay, so here's what I heard. Here's what I've heard and wondered. Underneath the, the, the Star Tours you know, facade of the, of the ships all kind of leaving and going out into space there, uh, there used to be a Mary Blair mural in that location. And I have for quite a, some time wondered what happened to that mural, if it's still underneath there, if nobody knows what happened to it, if you could shed any light on, on that. That is the big question. What's underneath the Star, Tool, Star Tours mural facade? Part of the Mary Blair mural is still there. Um, there were lateral supports that uh, went out horizontally to hold up the new facade. And wherever one of those horizontal um, supports landed in the building, they had to smash around that. Yeah. And so there's um, maybe 10 or 12 big holes in it on the upper part of the mural. But unfortunately, the lower part of the mural was completely uh, smashed and removed to make way for the doors because those doors were not there. It was a planter with a seat wall on it for that. And um, we could probably do an hour on the Mary Blair murals. But yeah, Yeah. (laughs) um, some of them are still behind that. And, um, and then on the other side, I've been told, cause that was done later, but I've been told that, um, that it's that some of that mural or maybe all of it is behind, um, the North side facade, but I don't know that for a fact. I, my eyeballs have not seen that right. where my eyeballs have seen the other right. and I have photographs of the other. Yeah. So, um, I have photographic evidence, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but on the North side, I don't know. I just, I was Someone told me that they preserved it and that I think someone also said they preserved it in such a way that they didn't need to bang the holes into it. Right. That would be nice, but I don't know that. 
Yeah. Well, thank you for answering. It's, it's, uh, I don't know why I, because I like her and her work so much and, yeah. and that field, that, not that the, the stuff that's there doesn't feel Disneyland, but there was something about that that felt so Walt Disneyland that those murals and how they sat there. And so thanks for well, answering. Next, it. next time you're down in Los Angeles, go over to UCLA and you can stand in front of another Mary Blair mural that's just like those murals in Tomorrowland. Yeah. And, uh, Joel Stein Institute, uh, where she did, uh, thanks to Walt, who donated the money, she did a, a large mural in the um, in the children's area of the Joel Stein Institute. Done. Sounds like we're recording a podcast there. Yeah. Yeah, you should. <laughs> um, well, Tom, thanks again so much for for your time tonight. Uh, we really. Uh, we really appreciate the stories and the thought process, and we hope you'll you'll join us again soon. It's like Netflix made a documentary just for us. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Pretty like much. Having such a good time, I feel guilty sometimes where I'm like, this next, is awesome. Next time, we're talking a uh, big picture about the entertainment or the theme park industry, and we're going to get to your books and what you're doing right now and what brought you there and the things that you're learning. So uh, I, I'm really looking forward to talking with you about those things. Great. Awesome. We'll do it sometime soon. so much fun how at how many hours at, at how many hours do you think tom will go i'm done i'm done talking to you guys i don't know i i, I go through these phases of, of thinking um you know like i'm really I'm, I'm i'm listening i should be asking questions i'm hosting a podcast right now too i hope people don't listen that i i'm just listening i don't want to host a podcast right now i just want to listen to these answers uh but then he'll say these little just these very like non you know they're just casual things to him yeah. and i'll be like wait 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 what <laughs> You talked to who? Yeah. You had what in your office? Tell me what it was like. No, actually go back. What did you have for breakfast that day? And then move forward. That led you through that day. It's just, it's just, and this is what I forget in talking to managers like that. It's just their life. Walking through a gigantic castle that they built uh, or helped design or worked with a team of people, uh, which was very classy on his part to go like, Hey, you Absolutely. It's a huge team of people. Absolutely. Totally get and that. And it is. And it is, absolutely. But uh, that's just their, that's just the life that he's lived of designing uh, entertainment on a large scale. Well, that's what I thought was so interesting when he's talking about going into the animation archives. And, you know, I want to get black and white photos. Unfortunately, I could only get the original paintings yeah, exactly, from Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, talking about, well, how is that as a fan? Because, of course, any one of us that... Uh, our Disney fans are going to lose their mind to be able to have the opportunity to see these original things. And he's just very honest. Look, I had a job to do. Like I wasn't thinking about this as a fan. That's that's the difference, right? Yeah. He, he, uh, he's, he is one, he is on the other side. He's creating original work. He's the guy that did this. He's the guy that worked with the team that did this. You and I are on the other side of that. Well, you got the originals drawing. There's probably only been like 30, 30 people that have ever held those. And you're one of them. That's amazing. Right. He's like, no, I'm the guy that was helping make the castle at that point. I had a job I had to do. That's what I was doing. I'm not a fan. I'm on the other side of fandom, which is neat. It is neat. It's really neat. How many more hours of questions do you think you have for Tom? Um, honestly, eight to 12 minimum. I don't want him to listen to this and hear that and be scared. It's just, no. I, it's just, I have, I have <laughs> and we're not of, going to ask eight to 12. Uh, but I do feel like, I do feel like we could have a, a weekend, like a, with, you know, some sort of uh, weekend with Tom. Yeah. Where we just sit around and talk to him and say, hey, I got another question. Yeah. What do you think about this? 
Yeah, he's got he's got such a an architectural and and process knowledge. Yeah, that I often wonder this when uh, when you when I ask him a question, I ask him about Mary Blair and, and the Star Wars. I wonder if they realize. I think they do. Um, yeah, that that's a building question. It's an art question, but it's it's, it's a childhood question. I'm yeah. trying to figure out what happened to my childhood. I'm trying to like little Aaron, little Aaron's memory of Tomorrowland ran off somewhere, and I need you to tell me where that went. Uh, and so they answer it casually, like yeah, I think we smashed holes into it. Part of it might be preserved. I was wondering how much <laughs> like, you were just uh, just oh, how many sad. tears you were I was, holding. I, I mean, I was glad. I was glad that it's still. There, I'm glad that that rumor that I'd heard is true, yeah. and I'm glad that there are parts of it. So I'm glad that he knew the answer to it right away. Um, you know, it's sad. It's sad that I don't know if it is or not. Disneyland is is never finished. So well, and and that's you know the reason why I asked him the question about Journey into Imagination. Yeah, because it is so substantially changed from what it was, and as I said, just captured my imagination, captured yeah. who I was, an 11 year old boy. Right. I can't revisit that. I can't yes, go back. I can't take my kids on it and share that thing with them, which is, you know, one of the things we've often talked about is it's not that change at Disney is bad. No. It's just that when something changes at Disney, you can't revisit it. It prevents can't time travel. It. It, it prevents time travel. It does. It, it prevents the nostalgia. It, pre- it prevents the passing of nostalgia. If such a thing exists, it is, that but, is time travel. And so because of that, it's very difficult to go through a change like that. And so I was so curious to know from the man that helped design yeah. the attraction, uh, how does that feel? And uh, and it's just interesting to get the perspective from, again, somebody on the other side of those things. Yeah, and, and to hear, uh, this is very common with Disney. You ask somebody a, a question about like, hey, they were going to change this or how did this go? And I heard they did this different thing. And they go, and usually they answered in the frame of, oh, I assumed they would do something as good or better. Right. It's like, imagine working for a company where that's the default sort of feeling about things. So yeah. means, the I'm only sure. reason why you change it is to improve yeah. it. Like, oh yeah, well, they're always messing stuff up. It's like, well, no, I just I didn't think much about it. They're yeah. going to make it better. It's Disney. And normally they did Yeah, or do. Normally they do. It's that one. this one. Yeah, and it's when they have misses. They're so few and far between yeah. that people talk about them and get outraged by them because they have such a string of delighting people uh, to that level. Yeah. What a fun, what a fun interview. Great interview. Great guy. Yeah. Great guy. Well, listen, everybody, thank you so much for listening. This has been Bob's and I Panthers. think it's really neat that, sorry, sorry, I think it's really neat that uh, it's so important to him to remember people's names. And I, I find that to be a theme of a lot of the people that we've, uh, that we've interviewed a lot of Imagineers that the names are more than just the names. They're the people and they're the people that made decisions that he can still kind of remember what yeah. they contributed. And so it's a way, it's a way of honoring the person, but also the person's contribution. Uh, and I just, I liked watching him kind of struggle with that and be like, almost like we're not moving on until I remember that name. <laughs> I well, kind of got that. And that's a little bit of a preview of things to come with our next episode yeah. uh, with Tom, because he is an author. He's working on two different books and both of them uh, involve Disney history and and the recognition of those who are not often recognized. Yeah. And so uh, it yes, his responses are very indicative of the path that he's on with yeah. his writing right now. Yeah, what an honorable and noble and uh, what a cool thing to do. Absolutely. Right on. Okay, now you can do the outro. Thanks. Well, thanks everybody for listening. This has been Bob Says and Banthas. We release every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon, and wherever you listen to podcasts. We would love it if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you thought about the show. It helps other people find out about the show and helps us know what you like. You can also email us, podcast at bobsandbanthas.com if you have an idea for a segment or a question. And you can visit us on Instagram. We're at bobsandbanthas. Until next week, he's been Aaron. I've been Scott. We've been Bobs and Banthas. Thanks so much.
Disney's Magic Kingdom Disneyland is growing every day. This Saturday night. Now there are more new rides for more fun. In electro-synthomagnetic musical sound. Through the magic of light and sound. Yes, there's more fun at Disneyland in Anaheim. Open every day, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. You can waste time with your friends when your chores are done.